Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Nick Batia. Nick is the author of Layered Money, a book about Bitcoin and its future in the financial system. And Nick is a financial researcher and an adjunct professor of finance and business economics at the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business, where he teaches applied finance and fixed income securities. He has been a guest on our show before where we discussed layered money. And he also publishes uh, the Substack uh, the Bitcoin layer, 
which provides very insightful uh, commentary on the world of Bitcoin and the financial markets at large. And he joins us today to discuss those topics, in particular recent developments in the fiat markets, particularly the bond markets. Nick's commentary on this issue is something that I uh, always seek out because it's uh, quite informative. So Nick, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me safe. And uh, I would also mention that I have a new course starting in January for the first time called Bitcoin and Digital Assets that I'll be teaching at USC. And so that's my uh, new Bitcoin course that I've designed the curriculum for. And I'm very, very excited to be teaching Bitcoin right alongside the bond market. Nice. I should also mention, now that you mentioned it, you also have a course on sailor.org as well. Uh, what was the title of the course? I think it was the Bitcoin layer. Was that Yes. Uh, the course is called Monetary History, and it is based off of uh, my book, Layered Money. Yes. And that's a uh, that's also a highly recommended uh, website that I strongly recommend for people. It's uh, basically a university for free online. And I have a course there. Um, introduction to principles of Austrian economics, and Nick has a course. Stefan Levera also has a course. It's a great website, thanks to our good friend uh, Michael Saylor. Nick, tell us what is new in the world of Bitcoin and fiat markets from your perspective. Yeah, it has been a dramatic year from a global macro perspective, to say the least. Uh, we've had the global bond market experiencing essentially its worst year ever on return as interest rates have skyrocketed all across the world. The increase in interest rates comes really from two sources that are essentially one source. We've had a large uptick in inflation, and at least in terms of the inflation statistics. We're at essentially 40-year highs in inflation, and that has unleashed a, unleashed a wave of tightening from global central banks in which they're raising rates um, all around the world, especially uh, at the Fed. And so for that reason, interest rates have gone up on government bonds. Prices have come way down. The increase on government bond interest rates has affected all asset classes, um, including Bitcoin and equities at large. At the Bitcoin layer, we have been writing for a few months about how we believe that some of the existing trends are ending, notably this current rise in inflation. We believe that it's starting to, that trend is starting to end. And we also believe that the end of central bank tightening is within the next few months here as well. Um, so those are the two trends that we're starting, starting to forecast when you started to get into, uh, how risk markets are going to perform off of the back of all that, it becomes much more difficult because you're talking in, you're starting to talk in third and fourth order of effects. But what we are seeing here is that the, the rise in interest rates, not only has it caused risk markets to trade lower this year, but it, it has also contributed to a major slowdown in the US and the global economy. One thing we can note in specific is the U.S. housing market, which is makes up 25% of GDP, and the U.S. housing market is in a legitimate contraction right now and is probably heading for a decline in its year-over-year prices uh, anytime soon in, in 2023. That will all trickle down into the rest of the economy, 
slow down growth. It will cause an increase in unemployment. It will cause the central bank to stop tightening and go back into easing mode. And so those are all the things that we're watching at the Bitcoin layer. Yeah. So I want to look back a little bit. I'm wondering, um, how how do you think of the enormous drop in the bond market? What are your, uh, I I don't think this was something that was quite expected for most people because generally, that there's see you know, people might have expected a slowdown in stocks and generally there's a feeling that these two are negatively correlated because if stocks are going down then people are taking their money out of equity they're not in a very um, risk on mode they're not looking to take on risk and they seek safety and generally safety means getting into the US uh, treasuries because that's considered a lot safer than equities so i think for most people this was quite unexpected to witness this level of drop. And I think, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, but I would say most people might have expected some level of drop in treasuries because, well, interest rates are going to rise. So clearly there's going to be a decline in the value of the existing bonds. But the worst year ever for bonds, I think, was quite outstanding. And, you know, watching the... uh, 10-year rise to 4%, I think was quite shocking for most people. So I'm curious about why you think this happened and uh, what what is the framework that you use for trying to understand how this develops over time? Absolutely. So let's talk about a few things. Number one, let's think about the long-term trend for, let's call it 10-year U.S. Treasury notes. Okay, back when you go back to the 80s, interest rates on the 10-year were in the double digits. And what we've seen over the last 40 years is a secular decline in U.S. Treasury yields. So that's a steady price increase, the inverse relationship between yields and prices as they're in fixed income. When yields are declining, that means prices are going up. So you've had this steady increase in price and a steady decrease in yield over the last 40 years in U.S. Treasuries. That comes from a lot of places, but one of the main sources of that is that there was this savings glut in terms of money that was earned abroad. Let's say China, for example, China would take that money and invest it in U.S. Treasuries as the safest place to store their dollars. And you multiply that really all over the world and even domestically. And that's what we have is we have this savings glut of money that goes into U.S. Treasuries and is brought on a secular basis, Treasury yields down. Now, if you zoom in a little bit more to the last 10 to 15 years since the financial crisis, what you see is U.S. Treasury yields coming from the mid-single digits all the way down to almost zero uh, during the pandemic. So, The trend continued and even strengthened as we got to uh, this this pandemic uh, panic, really, in the financial markets. So 40-year trend that was basically unbroken. And each time yields would rise back up within a cycle, they would stop at a point that was short of the last high in yield and resume their downtrend. So that's why it was a uh, you know a trend in that lower highs in yields over the last few decades. So 
when we look at the last high in 10-year treasury yields, it was around three and a quarter percent. So from my perspective, looking at this long-term bull trend in treasuries, it was my forecast and my really understanding that in this secular decline in treasury yields, there hasn't been anything that's changed fundamentally how I believe that market should behave. And therefore, yields shouldn't rise above 325 on their next round of increases, but that they'll stop somewhere around there and then resume back down as the cycle takes hold. Now, so that's why I didn't see 4% treasury yields happening. So that's the, the zoomed out version. Now, your question was, why did they experience such a terrible year? Well, if you think about simple math, it's really what it comes down to is simple math here. Treasury yields, once they reach that, you know, half a percent level, we're back up above 1%. And that's when we started to see the statistical inflation really hit uh, headlines. And inflation was going up five, six, seven percent. And at that point, when it reached about seven percent, the Fed said, you know, we have to hike, we have to hike rates, we have to start slowing down this inflation number. Bond investors looked at their holdings of treasuries yielding, let's call it one percent. And they looked at inflation, realized inflation heading towards seven percent. That is a negative 6% real yield on their investment and otherwise, you know, uh, being stated as destroying your money over the next year to two years to three years. And so if you had a 10-year bond and you're staring down the barrel of the next three years of inflation being at about 7%, would you want to hold that bond at 1%? The answer is absolutely not. So you're going to sell that bond, you're going to sell it at 1%, sell it at 2%, and even sell it at 3%. And that's what happened is we had this dramatic dumping of any fixed income instrument that had any sort of maturity because of the prospect of negative real yields based off of the realized inflation that we see happening right now, which is in the, you know, nine to six was in at nine, now it's closer to 7%. But either way, with treasuries at 3.5% today, it's still a, a negative real yield that you're realizing. Now, if you store that money in three-month U.S. treasuries, there's very little realized exposure because you're always getting the new rate every three months. You're not locked in to a three uh, or 2% yield for 10 years when the yield could be going up and causing a big capital loss in your investment. So money rushed into cash, into the shortest possible uh, exposure it could, so as to not expose itself to the price risk of rising interest rates, which, which directly causes lower bond prices. So that's an answer to why I didn't think yields would head to 4%. It also is an answer to why I think that um, yields aren't going to stay at this elevated level. And in fact, they've come down quite a bit over the last, basically since we booked this pod safe, um, they've come down quite a bit. And I believe that the trend of lower U.S. Treasury yields 
will resume in the context of the last several decades. Due, uh, basically, due to the nature of our monetary system, and there's been nothing that has materially changed in that. And yields do respond to the business cycle. We are headed into global recession. And that should cause a demand for the safety of government bonds. And again, it's relative safety, right? Versus other corporate bonds or even stocks. Government bonds are the, the best way to store fiat. That's really what it comes down to. You have this fiat standard as you've written about extensively. And within that fiat standard, there's so much junk um, that treasuries actually, they appear like gold for that standard. And within that standard, uh, I do believe that the demand for treasuries is, is, has already resumed. Yields are coming back down. And especially as we see inflation slowing on a headline basis, combined with slower growth expectations combined with the prospect of global recession, that yields will come down, both the United States and the rest of the world. We see the trend right now downward in yields being confirmed in Germany with uh, German boons down over half a percent from their highs uh, a month or two ago. I see. So would you say that uh, perhaps something significant that happened over the last year is the fact that we've moved, as you were saying, toward cash being the safe thing rather than bonds, which is kind of a qualitative shift from what it was usually the case. Because I, I like your framework of layered money um, because it's very useful of thinking about this. Under a gold standard, you know, the base layer is gold. Under a Bitcoin standard, the base layer would be Bitcoin. In a fiat standard, the base layer is cash as well as bonds. And... Uh, Generally, I think perhaps one way of thinking about it, I'm curious about what you think of this. One way of thinking of it is that when things get bad, but you know, moderately bad in a fiat system, then uh, safety is in bonds. And so you go slide down the risks uh, spectrum from speculating on highly risky assets, which offer high returns. You slide down to uh, lower risk assets, and that means bonds. But if things get really, really bad, then people will not even trust bonds. And I think you could say, you know, think about an example of a, of a country experiencing very fast inflation. Um, in, in that situation, you know, bonds are not a safe haven. People will jump out of bonds to physical cash or, you know, the end st initially I think it would be from bonds to cash and then when cash can't handle it, then they'll go from cash to um, foreign currencies. Would you say that this was something like this, that it was um, indicating a, a bigger kind of uh, lack of trust in the system that people weren't even trusting bonds and were moving to physical cash? Yes, so I think that we have to... Uh... We have to break down the word cash and the word bonds here so that we can correctly and, and fully answer this question. So remember that in the layered money framework, the counterparty at the, at the base layer of the system is the U.S. Treasury. Now, cash today, like if, if the average person were to think about cash a cash balance within their portfolio. Let's say this person had a retirement portfolio that's invested in stocks 
and it has some alternative investments, but then it has, uh, the person has a savings account. And he or she is looking at that savings account as that's my cash balance. But let's say that that balance is $100,000. That balance is a liability of the bank. Let's say it's Wells Fargo. It's a $100,000 liability of Wells Fargo, but because it's only $100,000, it's FDIC insured, which means that the federal government has an insurance mechanism on that deposit. So that individual is thinking of that Wells Fargo 100K deposit as cash. And he or she is right to do so because of the insurance mechanisms. And that's actually part of layered money in in the early 30s. The FDIC was a way to encourage the retail population to trust banks with an average amount of savings so that you wouldn't have bank runs and you could build out this fractional reserve system using a degree of trust in commercial banks. So now let's pretend this person now has a million dollars in his or her Wells Fargo savings account. That $1 million isn't fully insured by the FDIC. In fact, the person has 750000 of exposure now to Wells Fargo. So that's not cash anymore in one form. It's a quarter million in cash insured by the government and 750000 in cash basically guaranteed by Wells Fargo. But if that person wanted to say, I don't trust Wells Fargo, takes the 750000 out in physical U.S. dollar notes, Wells Fargo would say, no, sorry, we don't have the paper. You can't do that. So the person says, what are my options? Well, you should invest it in a money market fund. Well, what does the money market fund own? The money market uh, fund probably owns a bunch of U.S. Treasury bills. So we're still now getting into government securities, but it's government securities that have no duration risk, which means they have no price risk. So when you talk about bonds being the base layer of the fiat system, what you're talking about is U.S. Treasury bonds that have a duration of 10 which means for every 1% that interest rates move, the bond price will move 10%. So if rates go up 1%, your bond price just went from 100 to 90. That's not cash. That's not safe. And that's what you're trying to get at here is that government bonds are not safe when they have duration and therefore price risk. It's not that the U.S. Treasury is going to default, but you can experience an enormous capital loss on your investment if you're just investing in bonds. So cash can and still likely is in a lot of scenarios, cash is still U.S. Treasury securities, but it's three-month U.S. Treasury securities. We call those bills. So three month and in bills is the cash form that is now the risk free instrument. And there is now a big, uh, segregation between U.S. Treasury bonds and U.S. Treasury bills and the risks that investors are exposed to. So there, one last thing before I'll, uh, pass it back to you is that this actually lengthens the runway of the U.S. government and the dollar standard, the fiat standard, out potentially decades because 
the treasury realizes that it doesn't even have to offer a long-term steadiness of cash flow in real terms. It can just offer short-term cash flows that are linked to short-term interest rates and basically give themselves funding and give their investors uh, no price exposure. Basically, you just capture the short-term interest rate every three months. So that's I know it's a long answer. No, that's fine. That's what we're here for. So um, I'm just going to pick up on one aspect of it when you were saying the move toward the shorter duration. This dynamic that you're describing is essentially the inversion of the yield curve. You know, when people are scared, then they're scared of being in the 10 year and in the 20 and in the 30 because these things have uh, uh, very large price sensitivity and they prefer to go to the short term. And so because of the increase in the demand for the short term part of the yield curve, the yields on the short term go up while the yields on the uh, uh, long term go down. And so it's, 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 it's essentially what you would consider as the harbinger of an inflation. And so I presume you agree with the idea that an inverted yield curve is an indication that inflation is on the doors, right? Uh, that no. recession it, is at the doors. It, 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 it is a sign that recession at the door is at the door, 100% yes. But the mechanics that you described, um, it's actually a little bit different than that. So the reason why a, a yield curve inverts is because investors are actually willing to take on the duration. They're willing to go long, the long end of the curve and actually drive interest rates down below where they could get if they were just in cash. So right now we have three month bills at uh, 4.4% and 10 year notes are at 3.5%. So there's almost a hundred basis points of inversion, which means that you could get four and a half percent with a three month bill, but you see investors actually going out to 10 years to capture only three and a half percent because they think that three and a half percent will actually be a generous yield looking forward uh, three years from now. So it's basically a prediction that um, they think the three month yield will come down to 2%, let's say over the next few years, making a 10 year lockup at three and a half percent a good investment. So it is a sign of recession, but it's actually a sign of recession because investors are fearing deflation over any five to 10 year um, time horizon, or at least disinflation from the current levels. So they, it, it's advantageous to people that want to keep their money in short instruments because they can get a higher yield in a three month than they can in a 10-year, they get the higher yield and they get no price risk. So it's beneficial to people that want to invest short, but the inversion of the yield curve is an expression that big money investors are willing to lock up money for 10 to 30 years in treasuries because they think that the yield, even though it's lower than the spot short-term yield, it's actually generous on a forward-looking basis. I see. Okay, yeah, I got that wrong. Uh, okay, good. So then you would agree that it seems that we do have the signs of a recession coming up now, right? Yes. And it really does come back to, I come from the capital market side, say if you come from the economic side, but there is a, there's benefits to each one of us going into the other realm and trying to extract what we can. So 
I mostly look at markets, but I do dip my toe into the economic side and I look at economic indicators to give me a real sense of where the economy is and where the data is coming back, which will impact how the Fed uh, behaves, which will impact how markets behave. So when I look at the economy right now, you know, at the Bitcoin layer, we look at a few things. We look at PMI data, which is business survey data, including ISM and um, a bunch of data that basically is a question to business managers. Where do you see your employment situation right now versus where it was last month? Are you hiring more workers or less workers? Are you paying more or paying less for your input prices, meaning your commodities and your raw materials? Are you getting more new orders right now versus last month or less? And what is your backlog? Is is your backlog lengthy? Do you have a lot of orders to get to? Or is it shrinking and once you're done with your production, you don't have anything on the backlog? All of these questions are asked to business managers all over the world every single month. That gives us PMI data, and there's a really smooth way to, um, or the PMI data survey providers have made it really easy to interpret the data. A line, a, a reading of 50 means every, the answer to every question was neutral, and above 50 means more, and below 50 means yes, and we can see the trend of the economy in real time. And PMI data is showing us in almost every country and in almost every sector, contraction. And so levels have gone below 50, but notably, they've gone from 60 to below 50 over the past year. So it's not just something suddenly that's happened. It's a long process of a slowdown in the economy. So that's one of the things we watch. We also watch sentiment from consumers and businesses as well, using a few indicators. We look at the housing market. And so right now we see a massive slowdown in U.S. housing. We see a decline in month-over-month prices on a nationwide basis. That's a very rare occurrence. It's about to become year-over-year declines, which has only happened once in history, which was during the 08 crisis that lasted uh, a couple years, those declines. So we're headed to another nationwide decline in housing prices. We are seeing negative 30% or more decline in home sales versus a year ago. So absolute falling off the cliff in U.S. housing. That will trickle down to the rest of the global economy for so many reasons. There are first, second, third order effects in different ways that this is going to impact, but it's not just the housing slowdown that's going to cause recession in the rest of the globe, the slowdown is already taking place. And we see that from um, another thing that we see is global shipping prices have collapsed to all the way back to pre-pandemic levels. So whatever supply chain bottleneck that was there and inflationary impulse, it's all gone because the demand is slowing so much. Another red flag, say, Before I pass it back to you, another huge, huge red flag is the price of crude oil. It is in total recession formation. That's what I unofficially call 
bear market formations in crude because it usually corresponds with a, a stoppage in global demand or at least a massive slowdown in global demand. It includes China, includes the rest of the world. When people stop buying things, things stop going on trucks and ships, people stop consuming uh, as much energy, energy prices fall, basic economics 101, and the crude oil price right now is is confirming my thesis that we are in a global recession. So from a statistical standpoint, when will the recession start? When will it end? How deep will it go? I don't know any of that. What I know is the data and the bond market is confirming it also, Safe. When you see this yield curve inversion, you see tens. We talked about it when they had gone above 4% and we had, I had, I think I had even come on your show and say, yields aren't going to 4% because it doesn't jive with the debt stock and the overall slow growth and deflationary forces that we see across the world. Well, yields got above four and a quarter percent. And uh, I think that took a lot of bond in, um, people by, by surprise, but uh, the world is the world is right again as yields are falling, and we think about really the disinflationary forces that have taken the world by storm that will eventually unleash the monetary debasement that you and I write so much about that then supports the need for a new system, and we found that outlet in Bitcoin. So there are there's there are a lot of orders of effect before we get to the case for Bitcoin when we're talking about rates and inflation and deflation in the current environment. So I don't want to lose the Bitcoin thesis in all of this. Lower yields because of slow growth are a sign that we are going into recession, the inverted yield curve as well, and other markets are proving that as well as the economic data that I uh, watch. There are some sectors that are doing okay, like US-based services, for example, are still in expansion. But there's so much of the world that's in contraction right now that it's hard to deny we're in for a global recession. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safeadeen.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now.
Yeah, and I think, you know, from my perspective, from the Austrian perspective, you see the uh, the inevitability of the recession is just is baked in because of the way that the Austrian uh, business cycle theory um, thinks of a recession, which I think, you know, a lot of people like to say academic economics is not very useful in the real world, but it is how most uh, market analysts think, you know, more, most market analysts think of the state of the market in terms of uh, credit. And they understand that when the Fed relaxes credit, then that causes expansion. And then when it um, raises uh, interest rates and contracts credit creation, that causes a contraction and possibly a recession. And effectively, you know, I, I, this is, we're at the kind of, we're at the point where uh, Wiley Coyote um, has f- f- run off the cliff but he's looking around and he can't 3D see land around him and he's beginning to it's beginning to hit him that uh, it's it's only downwards from here so i don't think there's a way of escaping this kind of recession you could kick the can down the road by having a lot more inflation but it looks like we've gotten to the point where inflation has become politically um too problematic for the Federal Reserve. And this is this is where I kind of, uh, I did not expect that the Federal Reserve had it uh, in it to get so aggressive against inflation. I thought they t- I thought the path of least resistance would be to just um, continue easing and just deal with it. But I was, you know, I did not think that Jay Powell had a Volcker in him, but he did. So, I think, yeah, it seems quite likely that there's going to be a recession. And I think, you know, the funny thing here is that, I mean, it's it's not funny, it's tragic. It's that instead of fighting inflation by not creating inflation, the Federal Reserve thinks that you fight inflation by creating unemployment. And then you fight unemployment by creating inflation, which is a very, very uh, destructive dynamic. I mean, it's sort of like waking up in the morning and taking all kinds of stimulants, you know, just uh, drinking coffee and taking cocaine and uh, all kinds of uh, methamphetamines to get you through the day so that you wake up. And then 7 p.m., you start taking sedatives to put you to sleep. And uh, there's a much simpler way, which is just quit all the um, sedatives and all the uh, stimulants and then, you know, let your body uh, naturally wake up and naturally go to sleep. The, the the damage that is done to the body from all of the withdrawal from all of the stimulants and the sedatives is quite uh, quite destructive in the long run. And this is kind of how they see it in how the central planner sees it. You know, at the end of the day, you hire the person to administer sedatives and stimulants for you. They're going to wake up every morning and figure out how to give you more sedatives and stimulants. They're not going to think about, um, you know what, maybe you should lay off the sedatives and the stimulants and fire me and just get on with your life and wake up in the morning and get some sunshine and some exercise and not take methamphetamine. But, you know, (laughs) to each their own, I guess. Um, But uh, so given that you think that we are going to be seeing a kind of recession, you think that the kind of long-term trend in yields declining, you think that's going to resume? I do. And it's, it's harder to, um, you know, it's harder to assess where yields are going, you know, over any time horizon, of course. But what I see is the demand for U.S. Treasuries coming back off of the back of this economic data that I'm watching 
contract. So it tells me that there is somewhat of a, and this is always dangerous, but there is somewhat of a one-to-one relationship between a material slowdown in the global economy and declining U.S. Treasury yields. It's something that I've witnessed my whole career, and I'm not willing to abandon that framework, especially when I see it happening once again, despite everything that we've gone through over the past couple of years. So the short answer to your question, SAFE, is yes. I believe that in yield, secular decline resumes, even though that thesis is has been put to the test all year. It's very obvious when yields are in a secular increasing trend as well it's very as well as it's very obvious when they're in a secular decreasing trend. And to stand in front of what we saw this year was risky and really a, a fool's errand and it it was a widowmaker trade too to try to time you know when to get back in long US treasuries especially in the face of all that inflation and um, Fed hiking. But on October 27th or something, I wrote a piece called Welcome Back Bond Bulls because I was starting to see the slowdown in data correlate with a decline in yields in the way that I think market participants are used to, cycle watchers are used to. You mentioned the cycle. How lovely would it be if we had a cycle that the free market let happen instead of the Fed with the, with the stimulants and the sedatives example that you so brilliantly put forward. It's, it would be amazing to see it, but the truth of the matter is that the bond market does respond before the Fed and it does show the Fed kind of what it should be doing. So the free market still does have some hold and that free market expression of where the economy is going is really represented in the 10 year yield. Um, and other U.S. Treasury yields. So as yields declining, it's telling us the economy is slowing. Kind of all is right within the world with, in terms of the signal that we get from the fixed income market. Now, I want to talk about two things really quickly uh, in terms of the tightening cycle that we saw this year. So I mentioned that there's headline inflation, so the Fed has to raise rates. You mentioned that, wow, we didn't really think that Powell had this Volcker in him that he would raise, he would actually get rates up by 4%. Um, that seemed, it seemed impossible at the beginning of the hiking cycle. And then in August, he made his forceful speech and, you know, rates went straight up from there, 100, 150 basis points more priced into the market. And he's going to get pretty much all of that, right? He's going to raise rates by 50 basis points on December 14th. So he will have basically gotten four four percent four and a quarter percent of cumulative tightening. That all is, um, you know, we've talked about the cause of it from the inflation perspective, but what we haven't talked about is some of the geopolitical forces at play here. One of them being China and this tech cold war that the United States and China have. So we can't discount that the Fed's move because the Fed is an arm of the U.S. government as well as an arm of Wall Street at the same time. The Fed is a bank that has member banks that are private entities, which are you know Wall Street banks and European banks, for example. 
the U.S. government is the entity that issues the charter for the Fed. So it is this, um, you know, synthesis of government and banking infrastructure. It would make sense that that infrastructure targets other entities geopolitically that um, are threatening it. So to target China and slow down the Chinese economy or even affect Chinese ability to develop its own semiconductor industry, which would have effects on China's military and other things of that nature, that would make sense. It would also make sense. There's a theory out there uh, that the Fed was trying to affect the euro dollar funding market and try to bring money back from the offshore system to the onshore system by trying to attract higher interest rates in the U.S. economy. So it really is important to factor in where and why the tightening is taking place, not just from one source being headline inflation. There are other forces at play. It could be why, say, you and I were both surprised that yields went to 4% and that Powell actually got Fed funds to 4% because there might be other forces at play. Because when you look at just the raw economy, there was reason for in June, July, August to bring rates to a more uh, normal level or to stop raising rates and to let what they had done, you know, let, let the economy digest that. But they didn't. Maybe it was because of inflation only. Maybe it was because of other geopolitical forces. But what we see, what we saw on November 2nd was the Fed introduced language to the statement, which said, we understand that there are effects of cumulative tightening. We understand that there is a lag to monetary policy, which translated means we started raising rates in March. That is starting to hit the economy now. So they've acknowledged that on November 2nd. On December 14th, they're going to make another introduction in language, which will be something along the lines of, we're getting to the point where the risks are more balanced to rate increases. What does that mean? It means if we raise interest rates more, we could really dump the economy. We could really cause higher unemployment. So we're going to pause here or pretty soon. And so the Fed is admitting that it's done. And so we can stop, I think, asking the questions of why they've increased so much and now look to the fact that the economy is entering recession. The Fed will have to pause its rate hikes and eventually maybe lower interest rates if uh, things go sour and um, just take that whole cycle approach to understanding interest rates and the economy. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the question here now is if yields resume their kind of uh, long-term trend, which, you know, you might intuitively, I think, I think another reason might many people would have thought that this is going to be, this time is different is because you'd think, you know, zero is a lower bound and we're got pretty close to zero in 2020. So there's only, you, you have to go up like zero percent nominally is 
is is a big psychological barrier to go below because um, you can tell people, well, zero, get zero percent in real terms, even negative in real terms, they might stomach it. But like zero in nominal terms is a big deal. So where does this go? Do you do you see negative rates? Uh, continuing i mean that's the only logical consequence and if negative rates continue what do you see as the long-term meaning of that i wouldn't rule out negative interest rates on treasury yields i wouldn't rule it out but i think that the so let's go back to what you said about volcker because around the time when powell made his forceful speech in jackson hole in august i wrote an article and i titled it King Jerome Volker Powell Hawk the Eighth or something something's tried to you know I tried to have fun with the headline, but really this this was his Volker moment where he was saying, Hey, I'm gonna raise rates all the way. And then I said something that was apparently quite controversial on a podcast a couple months ago in which I, I posited the idea that when the Fed started raising rates at the beginning of 2022, it was responding in part to an explosion in the Bitcoin price. And it was held as very controversial, but I, I was being tongue in cheek to some degree, but recognizing the fact that if the Fed is looking at its own reputation and looking at inflation heading to seven from seven, you know, from basically two to nine percent. And it's looking at stocks just ripping to all time highs. And it's looking at this new asset called Bitcoin that is now over one trillion dollars in market value and calling into question the legitimacy of central banks. Your two books save. I mean, let's be very honest. What is out there? in the public sphere about Bitcoin versus the Fed. And your subtitle is the, the alternative to central banking, the decentralized alternative to central banking, right? It, it, it's public knowledge now that we have this tool. Do you think that the Fed is looking at the, all of those things and saying, you know what, we, our reputation isn't really that important to us. We're going to keep easy monetary policy forever. Or do you think that they, in some corner of their mind, whether it ever made it into any statement, into any dialogue, in the back corner of their mind, wow, you know, this Bitcoin thing is, people are really starting to call us out. We should raise rates and defend our reputation for fighting inflation. And we should do it now and we should be aggressive to try to stand up for ourselves as you know, the Federal Reserve. It is possible that it's part of the game theory here, that the Fed wants to look at their own reputation and say, I'm not just going to go back to trillions in QE. I'm not going back to zero interest rates. I'm going to, I've made an effort to defend my reputation here over the last 12 months, and I'm not going to let that just unwind by going back to zero in QE. So it is part of my baseline expectation that the Fed doesn't fully capitulate. And by fully capitulate, I mean 
Fed funds back to zero and QT reversing to QE. Because remember, we're still in a QT environment, a strong QT environment. The Fed is destroying reserves by letting treasuries mature from its balance sheet. It's not replenishing those treasuries. It's not replenishing its mortgage-backed securities, which is a separate issue. Um, I don't know how long they're going to be able to do that, especially with a nationwide decline in home prices. That's something that it's a big question mark for me in my own analysis is what is the QT and mortgage-backed security situation going to be over the next several months? But to answer your question, I don't think the Fed is going to rush back to zero, let alone rush back to QE anytime soon. It's hard to make longer term predictions, but what do I see? I see the Fed pausing its rate hikes, maybe doing, it's funny, I remember in 2018, then they started, they had raised rates basically too much and were causing everything to crash. And they said, we're going to do quote unquote maintenance cuts which means we, we, we hiked too far. We're going to maintain the rate by doing some maintenance cuts, you know, total BS lingo that the Fed always uses, but maybe some maintenance cuts here um, over the next 12 months. But just going back to this era of easy money right away will damage their, basically the work that they've done. See, even you are calling him Volcker and I'm naming him, naming him Volcker in an article. Both of us are giving him that credit. And it is credit. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, and there are people all across even the Bitcoin landscape that are saying, wow, you know, Powell's actually doing something to attempt to end the era of unlimited monetary, easy monetary policy, QE infinity. Can he just accomplish that in nine months? They started hiking rates in, in March. Could he do it in nine months? No. He's going to, I mean, it, he'll lose that credibility, you know, instantly if he starts cutting rates dramatically. So he's going to do his best to do his best Volcker impression. How long will that last? Nobody knows. A severe recession could call that into jeopardy. But I think his Volkerness will remain to the effect that maybe he won't raise rates to you know, 10% in Fed funds, I definitely don't think that's going to happen. But keeping rates at three to 4% instead of bringing them back down to two or 1% and, and letting QT take course, not going back into QE, not abruptly ending QT either, I think could all certify this Powell-Volker connection that we have seen from the market. Yeah, I, sh- I should say um, I'm I'm not that easy to please. <laughs> in that, uh, I I wouldn't call being a Volker. I, I wouldn't say that it's much credit. In that, um, I mean, somebody once criticized me on Twitter, saying, you know, you you Austrians are being a little bit unfair. If he uh, if he cuts rates, then you complain about inflation, and then if he raises rates, you complain about the recession. And I said, yes, that absolutely is it. Uh, the The problem is not whatever number he sets. From my perspective, there is no right interest rate. The right interest rate is what happens when the Fed shuts down and buyers and sellers of capital need to buy and sell capital to one another. In other words, it's, it's, the, it's the central planning itself that is the problem. So 
uh, while you know people who are generally kind of of the Austrian inclination or people who are more of a free market focus, they may tend to lean more on the anti-inflation side of the argument. Uh, and, and I guess if you look at the last 30, 40 years, you see it uh, that it's been enormously um, indulging the inflationary side. But I I try and always keep my mind in my mind that you know you you don't fix inflation by um, raising interest rates any more than you fix your methamphetamine addiction by taking sedatives to go back to that metaphor. So it's you know because I'm telling you you should stop taking methamphetamine doesn't mean I support you taking um, sedatives that put you to sleep. I think you should quit both. So I don't think raising interest rates or lowering interest rate is in either of these are the wrong or are the right answer. I think it's just the central planning itself that is the problem. And I think more concretely, you know, because after all, they're not out there to make me happy. But more concretely, I think all right, you, you've had your King Volker moment and you've basked in the sun and you've shown those uh, anti-inflation people who's really boss. But, you know, the bill is going to come now. And then this, now is the time when the consequences of this begin to materialize. So I guess the question then becomes, how do, the, how, how, do you, how do you navigate out of this corner that you find yourself in? On the one hand, more easing is going to mean more inflation, which I think is becoming uh, politically unpopular. But on the other hand, continuing to raise interest rates is how uh, you know we're at the point now where the um, servicing of the U.S. Treasury debt is the single biggest item in the U.S. budget which is a big deal. I mean it's it's uh, the US is paying more for its debt right now than it is paying for, its, for than it is paying for its military. And the US pays more for its military than the rest of the world combined. So basically, I mean, uh, you know, people like to look at the expenses of the Bitcoin network. Uh, you know, the fiat network needs the biggest military in the world and the debt servicing that is even bigger than the biggest military. So where is this going? And I guess, okay, maybe they can kick the can a little bit further down the road and, you know, get a little bit, get the rates up, get the spending up and then pivot back and then get some inflation, continue to oscillate between being hungover from the sedatives and um, being hungover from the, uh, from the stimulants. But don't you think that we're maybe reaching a bit of an end point? And, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we last week we discussed with James Lavish and the week before with Dylan LeClaire. And I think, you know, I tend to sympathize with their perspective that we're coming toward an, an end point of this. Like there's maybe they could kick the can down the road a little bit, but there's not a lot of road left. Yeah, I think that they can kick the can down the road a long time. And say, I want to also acknowledge that the work that people are doing on the long-term damage that can come from this stimulant sedative situation that we find ourselves in, it's important work. And looking and, you know, looking at the next generation is important work. And so, you know, the books that you write, they're causing people to think in terms of decades and centuries and not just about the next quarter or the next year of, you know, the economy, their income, their portfolio returns and all that. So 
it's all very important work to look at the damage that we are doing to ourselves with the indebtedness, with the, you know, military spending and interest expenses far outstripping our ability to tax and raise tax revenue, you know, trillion dollar deficits every year. But I do believe that the U.S. can kick the can down the road for a very long time due to its relative advantage versus the rest of the world. And, you know, I do study capital markets across the rest of the world as well as travel. And there is just still such a relative advantage of the U.S., of its property law, of its entrepreneurship culture, of its culture of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. The U.S. has a lot of issues, and we are fighting a lot of battles to protect certain components to the Constitution and uh, our society as a republic that protects individual freedoms. We're fighting a lot of battles in the U.S., and as an American, I can say that as well. But I can also say with confidence that nowhere else in the world is it like it is here. And I just forget about, you know, I just got back from India. There's a huge difference in the cultures and here in India, even though India has um, a billion brilliant people and a great energy for work and a great work ethic and um, a lot of the ingredients. But there's a reason why there's such a, a, a dichotomy in, let's say, the relative GDPs of the U.S. and India. But forget about India and Africa, which both have tremendous demographics for a minute, and just talk about Europe. Europe, the uh, biggest economy in the world, you know, if you incorporate the whole continent and with a lot of different cultures within Europe, the growth impulse that comes from Europe is almost nil because of the red tape there. There's no there's no uh, motivation to become an entrepreneurial society in Europe. And if you spend time there, you realize this, that they're focused on other things. They're focused on social protection. They're focused on social issues and they're focused on equality more in Europe. Those are not the ingredients to growth and innovation. And, you know, different parts of the world are serving different purposes, but the U.S. does serve this purpose. I think that in a, in a relative value sense, it gives the U.S. decades and decades of runway, even though the economics don't look great of a debt to GDP ratio at above 100%. There are ways that the U.S. will continue to kick the can down the road. Maybe they reduce their military spending over the next 10 years. Maybe the interest expense is reduced over the next 10 years due to lower absolute interest rates. Maybe the U.S. is able to lock in low funding for a long time due to the inverted yield curve. Maybe the U.S. has this sustained 5% inflation that makes the real debt decline or the debt decline in real terms over the next several years as one of the things that, you know, people are forecasting that, you know, one of the only ways out is inflation. So maybe inflation is not 9%, but it's like barely above the rate at which you need to start destroying the debt on a real basis. So there are a bunch of reasons that the U.S. can continue 
to, you know, kick, kick the can down the road. And I don't see any blow up from the U.S. government funding side or the U.S. Treasury security side of things because of the apparatus of the Fed, the U.S. relative property law versus the rest of the world, and also the network effect of, you know, 80 plus percent of global trade being truly valued in in USD. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, this is a good point. And of course, this is um, th- this is really the the wind in the sails of the US dollar is the fact that everything else is much worse. And so you're right, you know, you look at uh, Europe, you look at India, you look at China, a lot of people in the US like to present these countries as being uh, a lot more serious of a threat uh, from the outside than when you go there, you know, you actually go there and you look at the institutional problems that these countries face. There's definitely an element to it. And this is why ultimately capital holders all over the world continue to send their capital to the US which gives the US effectively a bailout on all of its mistakes you know as long as you're the as long as you're the least drunk person in town then uh, you're going to continue to get a lot of more work than all the other uh deadbeats but there's you know the, there comes a this is kind of a curse more than a blessing and saying the other guy is more drunk than me is not a strategy for sobriety and in fact, if it allows you to get away with continuing to be uh, drunk, then it actually is counterproductive in the long term because you keep noticing that, hey, I'm just getting more and more drunk, but all of these other people are worse than me. So clearly, I'm, I can keep indulging more and more. In other words, it's kind of uh, giving you more rope with which you can hang yourself. And that makes me um you know at the end of the day your uh, you know the problem with being drunk is it's it's not a competition uh, ultimately you're up against your own body your own demons and you're up against your own interest payments so um the, you know the budgetary problems yes they can be alleviated a little bit by more people getting into government bonds but they can't I don't know. Can they be continue? Can they continue to be extended forever? Perhaps not, because um, you know the. I, I mean, we're at a point where the um, the amount of money that needs to be paid for debt repayment is growing enormously, and it's just going to keep piling up. And the political will for spending reform. I mean, the idea that you're going to cut entitlements in any meaningful way. That you're going to cut the welfare, not you know, the, not the welfare for Americans, but the welfare, the real welfare, of course, is for Lockheed Martin and for all of these uh, military industrial complex companies, which uh, they eat the bulk of the um, military spending. The idea that any kind of U.S. politician and um, any kind of congressional majority is going to say, "Yep, yeah, we're gonna." put Lockheed Martin on a lean diet. We're going to cut our military spending. It's effectively saying we're going to start Lockheed Martin. And the idea that you could get elected with that, I think is completely fictitious. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a good movie called uh, Why We Fight, a documentary on the military industrial complex based on uh, the discussion from Eisenhower. And I think there is a compelling case to be made that um, most of U.S. foreign policy, you know, the, the reason the U.S. goes around fighting wars in all kinds of different places, 
is not so much driven by any kind of US interest. You know, the US has very little interest in whatever actually goes on in the uh, Middle East or whatever, you know, um, no matter who is in power in Afghanistan or Iraq or Saudi Arabia, it is in their interest to sell their oil. At the end of the day, they want to sell their oil on the market. And if the US just stays out of all of these places, if they just want to buy oil, they'll get the oil from whoever wants to sell it. And they don't need to get into a military conflict in order to secure the oil. I think this is completely fictitious fiat uh, politics. The idea that if we, you know, we need to take out Saddam so that we can have oil. I think it's just uh, TV propaganda. No, you don't. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Saddam or if it's any other politician. If they're in charge of Iraq, the best thing that they can do for themselves is to sell as much oil as they can. And that's just going to mean that uh, whether, you know, you don't have to buy the oil directly from them. The oil can go to other countries and you can buy oil from other countries. It's just going to be on the market. So if you really, if, if the concern was we want to get oil, then you stay out of those wars. So I think there's a very strong case to be made that the main driver of um, military spending is just welfare for Lockheed Martin and the military industrial complex. And the idea that that can be cut significantly, I find very, very uncompelling. And similarly with entitlements, welfare, uh, all the other major government spending, all the uh, public sector salaries, these are things that are extremely well entrenched. These are things that are extremely difficult to dislodge. There isn't the political will for any kind of major cuts. And in fact, when people think of major cutting of government budget, they think of Ronald Reagan and they think of Ronald Reagan as being this monster who came and he cut budget and he enforced fiscal discipline and uh, he reduced government spending. But in fact, if you look at the amount of government spending under Reagan, it went up. There were a few um, high profile, emotionally sensitive cuts that were made, which get played up by uh, Democrats uh, in order to drive home the message of Ronald Reagan as a massive uh, reducer of spending, as somebody who wanted people on welfare to go hungry. But realistically, let's look at the numbers. You know, the government spending continued to go up, government debt continued to go up, and it's just tiny little blips that are practically. Un, imperceptible when you look in the long run. It's just government spending is going up. The political incentive is always for government incentive to go up. And I don't think there is any kind of real um, political will to move away from this, particularly with the current uh, government. And, and, and even, you know, not just Biden, uh, with Trump as well. I mean, so, some Republicans like to present this idea that um, the inflation and the extra spending is all because of Biden and Biden's stimulus and Biden's checks. Trump was doing the same thing when he was in office, and it's highly likely that if he stayed in office, he would have been doing very, very similar things. I don't think you could find any kind of uh, seriously uh, different uh, economic impact to their two policies. Trump handed out checks, Trump printed money, Trump uh, did the same things that uh, Biden wanted to do. And this is just democracy. You don't win elections by telling people to tighten their belts and telling them you're not going to spend their money. You win elections by telling people, hey, it's not your money, it's my money and I'm gonna spend it and I'm gonna make you happy. That's just how elections work. So I don't see um, fiscal responsibility happening anytime soon. And you look intellectually 
I mean, the debate is dominated effectively by people. For, you know, the full spectrum of debate is basically Paul Krugman to MMT, and it's just, you know, do we spend a lot or do we spend without any regard to <laughs> to any kind of opportunity cost? This is this is where all of the academics and media uh, debate is right now. It's 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 Stephanie Kelton versus Paul Krugman. It that's the Overton window basically. So it's it's a very 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 long way from doing the kind of spending cuts that you know that could bring us to a uh, balanced budget or to bring us reducing the debt and uh, cutting down on it. And I think that. Uh... You know, the, what you bring up about the military industrial complex is very important. Um, I would add even energy into that now because energy and military seem to have uh, gotten together over the last 30 years in, you know, U.S. foreign policy to start exercising their own needs and wants. And it is important to understand that that's a fixture in U.S. government spending. Um, and that is unlikely to go away, especially given that our original warning was 70 years ago um, that this might become the case uh, from Eisenhower. And one thing I would say about welfare spending as well is that one of the things I think could start to unleash a bigger problem with U.S. debt, indebtedness, and even inflation is if and when we go to UBI. So the U.S. cutting its spending and being more fiscally conservative is not my base case scenario. Um, I think that the U.S. can kick the can down the road for many years, mostly due to the network effects, um, as long as it doesn't go haywire on its spending. But one of the things that could unleash massive inflation and there is political will to get it done is UBI because we already had the test run during the pandemic. So the infrastructure is already set for UBI to happen. And one of my fears is that we head into the next recession and UBI is politically, or there's a will for a political will for UBI to take place. And that gets passed and it gets enacted in a semi-permanent sort of way. And then you can never come back from that sort of uh, deficit spending. And that's deficit spending that actually ends up hitting inflation. It's not this monetary stimulus that takes time and wealth effects and stock market pumps and all that kind of stuff. It goes right into checking accounts and it, it starts to hit domestic inflation right away. And then, you know, the world will look at the U.S. Treasury market under different, under a different lens in that sense, because it hasn't punished the military industrial complex. It hasn't punished the entitlement Medicare spending and Social Security spending. It hasn't punished any of it with higher interest rates. But what could happen with UBI? We don't know. And we do have a preview um, with the pandemic and what happened. And the subsequent inflation, um, it is. It can be argued that the primary contributor to inflation was the fiscal stimulus that came out of the U.S., coupled, of course, with monetary stimulus due to, you know, the financial crisis that happened during that protracted period. 
but it wasn't just the QE by itself. It was that the QE funded real dollars in people's checking accounts at the same time that supply chains were being broken. So that could be an accelerant. And it's one thing that it's actually one of my base case scenarios that we'll get UBI in the US and it could even come in the form of a central bank digital currency, which starts to get into all sorts of dystopia. But these are warnings I think we have to give to our audiences because whether they happen in two years or 10 years, it's still something that we need to be aware of. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in the fiat standard, I discussed this as, um, uh, you know, if, if you try and make sense of how the fiat standard can continue to survive for so long, I think a key idea is that credit destruction is what keeps inflation in check. You know, you do inflation that creates uh, money supply, it increases the money supply, credit creation essentially increases the money supply and devalues the currency, but then credit creation is kind of self-correcting because the more credit you create, the more um, bubbles you create and then these bubbles pop. And so there are periods in which the money supply contracts or expands very slowly. So it's not like we're going through 10% per year every year. We get 10% for a year and then 1% the next year, or we get 10, 5, 8% for a few years and then we get zero or negative one or 0.1 for a year, which kind of takes a lot of the supply out and then um, that happens. But that is because in the fiat system, money creation happens through credit creation. But UBI th threatens to completely upend that because now we're just going to have money that just goes straight into people's wallets. And so that's high powered money that's out there bidding for all the things that you and I wanna buy. And so it gets felt in the inflation very quickly. So I think, yeah, that is a likelihood. And so, this is, in my opinion, another, uh, you know, I was just simply discussing the possibility of fiscal uh, responsibility and how unlikely it is. But in this case, we're even discussing, you know, just, uh, it, it's not just that responsibility is unlikely. It's also that we're likely to see a lot more irresponsibility. In fact, I think this dynamic proves itself to be quite sustainable, wherein you use um, you know, you, you buy people's votes effectively and you buy people's support by spending their money and um, by engaging in inflation. It's, it's, it's very sustainable because it pleases the military industrial complex. It pleases the banking industry. It pleases the politicians who are able to play those. And it pleases a majority of people or a significant enough majority of the people who vote or the people who count the votes. Uh, in order to uh, support this uh, charade continuing. You know, you print money, you hand out to all the politically influential uh, factions, and you hand out money to individuals as well. So you have a significant contingency that is arguably going to always be more powerful than any opposition in favor of continuing inflation. And I think we're gonna see this more and more and uh, the you know that also helps me think that maybe there isn't just that much can down the road in fact the best case that i can imagine for why uh, that there, of how there can be more can down the road is that you're going to have to significantly alter the shape of the road effectively in terms of how people consume and so this is where I think, you know, the climate change uh, hysteria comes in quite handy. 
um, and you know the, the pandemic lockdown model, which we're seeing incidentally this week, Oxford has begun to implement climate lockdowns. Oxford in England has begun to implement climate lockdowns. So now there's rules about where you can stay and where you can leave in the town and you're only allowed to be in a specific place. And that's uh, pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty amazing if you think about it. You know, you're being locked in at home and told you can't spend fuel because it's going to fix the weather. Um, I think that's likely to be quite common now because uh, an enormous number of people are convinced with the idea that our consumption of meat and fuel, coincidentally enough, the most high politically sensitive goods and price sensitive goods um, whose prices rise and make people very angry. It turns out coincidentally enough that these things also happen to destroy the weather. And so the only way for us to fix the weather is for you to stop eating the things that experience fast inflation, coincidentally enough. And so I think we're headed more and more toward that kind of world wherein, you know, maybe there isn't a big collapse in the bond market, but you're getting paid your, you know, your bonds are maintaining their value nominally and you're getting paid your coupons nominally, but you're able to buy um, a lot less meat and fuel. I think those, those are the two big ones. You're able to buy a lot less meat and fuel than you would like to or that you would expect. And your consumption is being directed towards digital goods and toward uh, industrial goods that are not very price sensitive, that can be ramped up in production quite easily so they don't experience as much inflation, as much as things like food and energy, which require a lot more. So in other words... Well, all the apps on your phone are free. So <laughs> it's not even like you're driving uh, them into things that don't experience inflation. It's uh, a lot of this consumption culture um, you know, from the digital perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you look at it, uh, you know, I, this is where uh, Michael Saylor's analysis of inflation, I think, is extremely important. And that's, uh, it was really the glue that held together the fiat standard made me really understand it. Um, there's no such a thing as an inflation rate as a one metric, like 3% to 7%. Inflation is different for every good. And if you look at the differences, you see that there are very different difference, very different kinds of goods. So digital goods, you know, the apps on your phone, they get cheaper every year. Your app gets, your apps get better every year. Even the free ones, you know, they continue to get better every year. And the, and the digital, you know, electronic goods, they also get cheaper every year. Your laptop has more hard drive on it. Um, uh, every time you buy a new laptop, it's just, uh, it gives you more capabilities. So, and then, you know, industrial things are also not very inflation prone. So you keep moving more and more toward uh, these kind of goods, you know, stay home, don't leave the house, live in a tiny little pod to save the environment, which means, you know, very little heating costs. And um, you don't travel because that's bad for the environment. You're going to get a little golf cart that uh, goes a maximum of 15 minutes because that's how you fix the weather. If you do those things and if you eat, you know, get your kibble delivered to your uh, pod, well, there's not going to be a lot more inflation. I think this is really the only kind of... Uh, the only kind of road left if you want to kick the can down the road. The, the, the only road left for the can is keeping nominal appearances as they are and letting people have fun staying poor, basically. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's definitely a dystopian nature. And the the thing is that if you look at UBI, 
if you were to compare it as an alternate to what the government currently does, I would argue it, it would be better. But the problem is that an introduction of UBI won't go alongside a cut in spend in other places. Like you said, it's hard to reverse employment of government uh, workers and those sort of sectors and quasi-government sectors that have come up and uh, secured a lot of the fiscal budget every year, that will all remain. And so the introduction of UBI by itself, I think would be a better system, but uh, in combination with no cuts elsewhere, it can become you know inflationary. Yeah. So... So you seem to be suggesting, like, if I were to corner you into making a prediction, you know, you have to pick a horse in this race. You think inflation rather than uh, default on bonds is much more likely, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and effectively, it's not that different. So you still get paid on your bonds, but your bonds are worth a lot less. Yeah, and, it, you know, again, rates have gone from let's say four and a half to three and a half percent in the last month or two. Okay. You could have made, you could have made money on that trade, but if you were to buy a bond at three and a half percent today, let's say a 10 year bond, hold it for a year and the yield hasn't changed. You, your price is still at a hundred. Basically you've gotten a three, three and a half percent coupon but inflation was definitely at a minimum of 6%. So there's all there's all walks of investors here and you know the simple math is that with spot inflation higher than the nominal yield you're still losing money on that investment in real terms. So yields can come back down and but still with higher inflation uh, the U.S. can accomplish its goal of reducing its debt in real terms. So, yes, I think that the inflation route is much more likely um, than any sort of default. Yeah, and I think uh, the reason that I think this makes this more likely is that inflation is uh, – it's, it's a lot easier to fight inflation by simply <laughs> just changing the way that you measure CPI. I mean, who knows how the CPI works? Who knows what goes into it? It's extremely complicated. It's extremely, um, um, it's extremely pliable. You can change the composition of the CPI extremely easily, and um, you know they're constantly making adjustments to the way in which they calculate it. And I think that's just going to continue to happen more and more, and likely uh, they'll bring it down to the number that they want. You know, the losers in this case are going to be the people that rely on uh, the dollar and on bonds as their store of value. And I think this is this is really ultimately, like for me, the, the whole discussion is um, the way that I look at it, as, as I've told you before, the way I see it is that basically um, the real competition for Bitcoin is bonds. I think this is really the main... This this is the main dish for Bitcoin. Some people say Bitcoin is up against altcoins. I don't think that's the case. Bitcoin is up against gold. I think gold is a good, decent appetizer for Bitcoin. You know, $10 trillion market cap. Uh, getting gold to become purely jewelry is just going to be the first leg of the Bitcoin journey. The real main course is the bond market. And I think whichever way you cut it, 
uh, it's it's difficult to see bonds outperforming Bitcoin in the long run because of inflation, because of uh, whether it's through default or inflation, you can see that it's going to go in this direction, I think. And I see, I, I see this continuing to become more and more obvious for more and more people over time. Yeah, and I think that sometimes the problem in conversations and the debate is that two people are talking about completely different time horizons. So if, you know, someone looked at your tweet and my tweet maybe on the same day, they might think that we are on completely opposite sides of the spectrum. But when in reality, you know, you're talking about, and I just finished interviewing Jeff Booth and, um, you know, his, his uh, points about the, the monetary system and, you know, the disinflationary nature of the rest of the world versus, you know, some of the inflationary uh, impulses that come from monetary and fiscal stimulus, it does point to a situation that over a long time, a time horizon, it's very difficult to own 30-year U.S. treasuries when you're looking at, you know, Bitcoin as an alternative there. But for retirees that look at a 75% decline in Bitcoin price relative to, you know, a modest, let's say, 10, 20% capital loss on their bonds, um, and the bond value will come back up to 100 in just a few years, maybe on declining interest rates or coupons, you're talking about really different time horizons of people looking at things. And so when I'm looking at the investment landscape and I'm, you know, my readers have divorced, diversified portfolios across asset classes, they have to shift asset allocation or they have to allocate new money when they get it. Um, they're looking at all these things in a much shorter time horizon. And I'm not a day trader, nor do I run a trading newsletter. I'm writing for people that are investing over the next one to five to 10 years. And what are they thinking about? But when we think about the societal impact of all these things, it's impossible to ignore Bitcoin. It's impossible to ignore the fundamental problems that exist in the US dollar system. So there's just a big dichotomy here. And the work that you know, longer term thinkers like yourself are doing is, is, is just as important as any, you know, shorter term analysis um, that might be something that I'm doing. So I, I go to my book for the longer term look at things and I write about, you know, maybe a more intermediate term in the newsletter. I'm going to, I'm, I've started to write a second book uh, that again, looking much more on a longer uh, term time horizon and, I, you know, I look forward to doing that as well. What's your second book about? I did not know about this. Yeah, so it started as a deeper dive into Bitcoin in terms of what I wanted to write about. But in the end, basically people kept asking me the same question, which was, I, you know, I read Layered Money. I really enjoyed it. I've read the Bitcoin standard. I want to read more about how global macro works and how markets work. And so my second book is going to be uh, a more zoomed out analysis of, again, money investments and um, the monetary system and global macro as well. Do you have a title yet? Uh, no, I have, a, I have a couple working titles, but 
uh, that's more of an internal battle. But I can definitely, you know, tell you in terms of the the theme. It's about money investing, and and of course, Bitcoin and its role is going to be in there again for sure. Okay, one kind of question I wanted to talk a little bit about. To Bitcoin, but going back to macro, if you were to guess, you would say pivot. Um, when when do you think the Fed will pivot and stop raising rates, and when do you think it would start cutting rates? Do you have any kind of guess? Yes. Yeah, so I think that the last hike will be in December or February, um, which is the next meeting or the meeting after the next meeting. Um, so very soon, uh, I think that. The economy isn't going to, it's not hanging on. And meaning that the data is getting to a point where the Fed has to say, at, at the very least, okay, let's pause here and see what's going on. Inflation is coming down. So the last hike is, is coming up very soon. And then at what point do you see interest rate cuts? I think that will depend on the depths of the housing contraction. And so um, you could see maintenance cuts sometime in the second half of next year. And if if there's a bigger problem, then the Fed will have to actually start cutting rates and, and get them down to, I don't know, three, three or two percent. But if you were to make me to predict, I would say December, or February for the last hike and the first cut before the end of 2023. Okay. What about Bitcoin? What are your uh, what is your outlook on Bitcoin? You know your analysis on Bitcoin data, Bitcoin on-chain data. What are your uh, big picture views on how things are going in the Bitcoin world? Yeah, I mean, I think that they have gone in terms of the news cycle, they've gone as badly as they can with Bitcoin and its decline from peak to trough being less bad than it was during the last cycle. If we if we can consider uh, the recent bottom of bottom here. So I think it's done, I think it's done pretty well given all that's happened in this cycle and that we should expect, um, we should expect Bitcoin to come back when demand comes back for Bitcoin, which will come from fiscal and monetary profligacy because that's kind of the underlying thesis here is that we need an alternative to shenanigans that go on in the traditional system. Well, if Powell is doing his best Volcker impression and the U.S. isn't doing UBI and, you know, all that, that's why you see the decline. It's in sympathy with risk. And it's just been hammered this year as um, they're as just the alternative to QE infinity. It really damages the Bitcoin thesis. So I'm, I am glad that uh, certain concepts have been wrecked this year. I think that's an important part of every bear cycle in Bitcoin is you have to destroy the worst ideas that were introduced as basically Bitcoin alternatives or even um, things that were invented to be better or more lasting than Bitcoin. They suffer the same fate in every cycle. So because I do think that the last hike is coming soon and that the U.S. is going into recession, that there will be some sort of fiscal and or monetary uh, response from that, that it will support uh, the Bitcoin price. But it doesn't need all of that for it to really come back to 
um, like normal levels. So the thirty to fifty thousand dollar range is something that we saw it trade for quite a while during the last bull market. I think that that's a sensible area that Bitcoin could recover to without any major stimulus from fiscal monetary side. Um, but then the next leg up would have to come from something like that because what is Bitcoin an alternative to? It's an alternative to the current um, standards. And so if everything is going well in the current system, it's less the reason to buy Bitcoin. And when the system starts to expose itself for how indebted it is and what type of rescue that it has to you know, uh, warrant in those situations, then the, the, the thesis for Bitcoin then comes back. So it is highly cyclical. And because we really only have three major cycles in Bitcoin's history, it's very hard to make predictions or to, to try to understand what is going to happen to Bitcoin. Is Bitcoin still beholden to the having dynamic or is it all global macro and, and, uh, liquidity and global monetary? Yeah, that, that, that was my next question. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, listen, if we get another having bull rally, it, it will become, I thought it was undeniable the last time when the having wasn't priced in and then boom, the having, you know, gets priced in and we have this run. But, um, we also had the Fed raising rates in 2018 with the last bear market in Bitcoin. And so is it macro? Is it, is it having? I don't know, safe. I don't have a great answer to that, but what what I can see is that Bitcoin and its demand and, I mean, the supply, of course, when the price moves, but the demand is so highly cyclical that the 75% drawdowns in Bitcoin, it doesn't change anything about the thesis of Bitcoin. Yeah, we've had them before. Yeah. And it it, it it would have been compelling evidence against the idea that it was all Bitcoin uh, cycles if we didn't have this crash. The fact that we did have the crash exactly on cue, like we've had the previous three, I think suggests maybe Bitcoin is still just marching onto its own beat. Maybe monetary policy and all of those macro factors, you know, they affected at the margin. Maybe we crashed down to 16 rather than, say, 25 or 30 because of liquidity issues. But... Maybe the dynamic is still the same. It's just Bitcoin. Maybe it is. And that's what is so incredible about Bitcoin. Part of what we're doing at the Bitcoin layer is we're coming up with this TBL fair valuation framework. Yeah, I wanted we're, to ask about that. Yeah, we're looking at three very basic metrics. One is the 200-week moving average, which has nothing to do with Bitcoin itself. It's just a long-term average price. Another is realized price, which is an on-chain metric, which looks at the cost basis of Bitcoin. It's basically the dollar price at which Bitcoin last traded and the sum of that for the network. And then another one is what we call the electricity hash value. This is a way that we've calculated the input costs for miners. For example, we incorporate the difficulty level, the speed at which the new S19s are, are hashing, um, you know, the, the latest and greatest mining equipment, as well as electricity prices. So we use Riot's input price, for example, as uh, or their electricity price as one of the inputs to our price. So it gives us a sense of 
what is a fair value for Bitcoin price? Doesn't mean that um, it's an automatic buy below and an automatic sell above. It just gives us a sense to where, you know, should it be trading? And when we look at our fair value in the low 20s and Bitcoin in the high teens, we're looking at it as, okay, Bitcoin is cheap relative to its fair value. And we can see that its ratio in terms of its price relative to its fair value oscillates from below one in bear markets to, you know, three to four to five in bull markets. And so, you know, it could be just fundamentals. What are Bitcoin's fundamentals? It's supply, it's supply schedule, it's difficulty adjustments. And honestly, it has to do with the mining industry itself. What are the costs to produce Bitcoin? And when that Bitcoin is produced by the miners, what is the price that people are willing to pay in the free market to use that Bitcoin for transactions and or for savings? So when the supply adjusts itself and only once every four years, uh, it does have an effect on Bitcoin. And um, for us to think that an asset is not determined by its supply first and foremost would be um it would be really presumptive of us and i'm not you know i i even wrote something last year uh is the four year cycle dead of uh, bitcoin it i mean it was a question to ask because we don't have enough data but bitcoin has a way of humbling us all and it it we we shouldn't discount that Difficulty and havings are the number one most important thing for Bitcoin price. It, to ignore that would be would be highly foolish. I think. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's really uh, it's really difficult, you know, uh, to, to just dismiss it because it seems to be really going marching on clockwork. I think what the stock to flow model um, shows is it's difficult to put a number on where we're going to peak and where uh, the range is going to be. And I think that's uh, very much in line with my thinking as an Austrian that, yeah, you can't figure out a, a, a price for where it's going to get. But it's very difficult to dismiss the trend. You know, every single time we get the halving and then we get a massive leg up and then we crash down. But the crash down leaves us higher than where we were before. I think that's, it's still going to be, it's, you know, we'd need to see no pump after the having or no dump after that uh, pump in order for that model to break um, regardless of what numbers uh, we have but i think that is probably still um, very much a very strong case not saying that all of the macro stuff doesn't matter but you know the supply of the asset itself clearly does matter and it seems to be predominant so far um, scott has a few questions for you scott uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so <clears throat> in your book, Layered Money, we learned uh, that the gold alone could not really drive the economy. It needed layers. And so money was these two things together. I am wondering, uh, the book suggests that we have uh, central banks, private sector, maybe CBDC as layers to Bitcoin. Um, if you could just talk about why the Bitcoin needs layers and where that stands today, that would help me clear up some questions. Yes. So Bitcoin being below, I'm sorry, 
CBDCs being below Bitcoin in the layered money graphic that you're referring to is meant more to express that government currencies will find a price relationship with Bitcoin that helps govern prices around the world. So right now, Bitcoin is just this asset by itself that trades up and down and it's quoted in dollar terms. But what if Bitcoin grows to this global currency that other government currencies reference for their price or even hold on their balance sheet at the central bank or at the sovereign level? It would give Bitcoin a price and balance sheet relationship with government currencies in, you know, where they currently don't have one. So that's the idea of CBDCs and Bitcoin having a relationship with each other. But in terms of layered Bitcoin, why do we need layered Bitcoin? I don't actually think that we need a fractional reserve Bitcoin system in which fractional Bitcoin is issued and masquerades as real Bitcoin. We see the, 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 the ramifications of that sort of thing after what's happened this year with, with uh, FTX and other exchanges. But what we do need is you'll always need extensible money, which means you'll always need a money that has an elastic source for lending. And that is, I think, part of human nature. And, you know, this whole fractional reserve, do we need fractional reserve or not? And in a fractional reserve system, there are all these things that happen that wouldn't otherwise happen in a full reserve system. I, while I agree with that, Fractional reserve lending is, I think, part of human nature. I try to discuss that in my book, Layered Money, as well. And so where were the where will money elasticity come from in a Bitcoin standard? It will still have to come from government currencies and banking systems that use fractional reserve because there is no way to do a proper fractional reserve Bitcoin system. Because if you try to give me fractional reserve Bitcoin and I accept it with my wallet or with my node, it will show me that you're not sending me real money. You're sending me pretend Bitcoin. And so the, but in the US dollar banking system, you are allowed to, to send dollars that were just created by a bank because of the banking network. The banking network recognizes each other's balances. So I believe that that sort of fractional reserve system will always exist in dollar terms. It won't and it shouldn't exist in Bitcoin terms, but that Bitcoin will become more of a price reference for the rest of government money. And that can happen over a long time horizon and can only happen once Bitcoin is used as um, kind of a triangular arbitrage uh, tool in global finance where one country has their own currency, another country won't accept that currency. So they use Bitcoin to triangulate uh, the exchange rates that they should all be doing business in. So that would be one signpost of the world moving toward a more Bitcoin standard. I don't see anything like that yet. And therefore, Bitcoin is still just relegated to itself as an asset that exists as an alternative savings tool, an alternative transaction network. And all of these individual use cases are increasing the network size of Bitcoin in terms of the number of users. And then over time, as that network grows, 
uh, it'll be utilized by other participants in society like companies and governments. Thank you for that. Um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, it seems as though you're saying this is something that could d- develop naturally over time uh, as Bitcoin becomes more, adopted more as a savings vehicle. Eventually, it's going to be natural that people will start to reference this and then it becomes a sort of trying as you mentioned, triangulated, and then um, it starts to naturally become the base for other things. I wonder, we have gold already, but it doesn't seem that this is happening with gold. I'm just wondering what would be different about between those two things of why this might happen. Yeah, Uh, gold used to be that for our world, and it's not anymore. And the reason that we don't see it is because gold is old. It's not, It we tried it and we and then we left it so the world is never going back to a a system that uses gold as a triangular arbitrage for the currency system it used to work like that literally and because we we kicked it out it now is just a savings vehicle or it's just an asset doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it's not used it is still used as as foreign exchange res- reserves by many countries, including China, um, Russia, and and India. Like India and Iran, sometimes you trade gold for oil. So there's there's a use for gold as again still in transactions as well as as a savings uh, vehicle and an asset. But that doesn't mean it's involved in um, international settlement on the global scale. Bitcoin isn't either, but it could be on smaller scales and we just don't know it yet because people are playing close to their chest or it hasn't, there hasn't been great investigative reporting. But the likelihood for Bitcoin to be involved in that sort of, sort of money movement, I think it's infinitely higher than gold making a second run at the monetary system. So, you know, gold is old would be my best answer. Okay, thank you. And uh, one last question here. Um, in your book, uh, you talked about how there was sort of a transfer from the Bank of Amsterdam then to the Bank of England as sort of the um, where the power lied, and this happened for reasons. And I'm wondering if there's something like this that would or could happen um, with China due to the fact that they have three times the population and sort of a it seems like they have a manufacturing-based economy. I know you touched a little bit on this about there's some institutional disadvantages because of, you know, maybe property rights and other things. Um, but uh, if one were to value evaluate uh, these two currencies, looking just at these two countries, their underlying um, economic structure, one has a manufacturing-based economy and is selling, whereas one is doing services and making basically nothing that... Uh, not nothing, but thing doesn't seem like it's making that many things that are very valuable, maybe besides agriculture. Um, maybe I'm not understanding this correctly, but I'm just wondering if there's something like that that uh, could be a vulnerability. I don't see China um, playing into the Bitcoin story in any material way on a global scale. That is just considering its closed nature and its focus on social control and complete control. And I, yeah, I don't see China factoring into the Bitcoin picture aside from wealthy Chinese individuals or 
family offices or even investment funds trying to allocate some money to Bitcoin as an alternative asset in terms of its impact on the network or global trade or the global currency system. I don't think that the renminbi is going to be involved in any of that in a material way. Excellent. Anybody else have any more questions for Nick? Yeah. I would like to know if you see more like traditional asset managers or bond investors allocating more money into Bitcoin. If not, why wouldn't you allocate just uh, a few percentage when you see negative real rates on your bond or some of the investments that you have? Yeah, so I'm not seeing I'm not seeing it in a mass adoption sort of way. Uh, I think that it's misunderstood cycles have a lot to do with that. Like we talked about another 75% decline, the models that they have. See, these allocators, they use models. And so if they can't model future returns, they have no idea how to put it into their portfolio. And with such a short lifespan, empirically, like it's something that, you know, Safe and I talked about for five, 10 minutes today already. You don't, you don't know what the cycle, we don't, we've, we spend our whole life in Bitcoin. We don't know how to assign probabilities to what the cause of the cycle is. And we literally are thinking about it probably all the time. So if you go to the traditional side where they're not thinking about that, they have no idea how to model the returns. So they can't model their expected, all of these managers, they are basically looking at expected returns and expected uh, standard deviation of returns, expected volatility. So they know the expected volatility is ridiculous. They don't know what the expected returns are. So it's hard for them to even include it in the universe, it, even at a even at a 1% level. Um, the other side of that is that you are seeing forward-thinking people allocate and make small allocations because they realize this risk-reward is worth it. So a number that I heard recently was 0.5% at a global macro investor that that's the recommended allocation for Bitcoin just based off of a generic portfolio given the available asset classes. Yeah, cr- traditional allocators still see it as a NASDAQ type asset class, which Chris says, and that's correct. They still see it as a tech play with outsized volatility and maybe outsized returns. So if they had any hyper growth segment, maybe some of that would find its way into Bitcoin. If again, you've, you were able to put numbers into your computer that say, okay, expected return is 50%, but expected volatility is 40%, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Maybe for their own like personal investments, they could do it. And they do. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of those people have a Coinbase account or something like that where they have uh, gotten involved because it was popular to do so, but they might not understand, you know, enough about it to get their clients involved. All right. Well, Nick, this has been uh, fantastic and fascinating. And thank you so much, as always, for joining us. And we look forward to having you on again as the world's adventures with fiat and Bitcoin continues. Thank you so much again. And uh, best of luck on your next book and your newsletter. Thank you, Safe. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this and uh, look forward to doing it again. Cheers. Have a good day.